attention, attention all personnel. It's MASHCAST. Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates episode by episode the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, General Robert Iron Guts Kelly. And joining us this week in the VIP 10 is returning VIP Major Brit Schramm. Hi, Brit. Hey, Rob. Thank you for bringing me back. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to have you back. We had a lot of fun talking last season, but now we're here for uh, Season 4, Episode 13, The Gun, original air date, December 2nd, 1975. Before we get to this episode, uh, Brett, I do want to ask you, what is your take on Seasons 4 and 5 of MASH, the B.J. Potter, Frank years? Are they your, your particular favorites? Where, where are you on, on this era of MASH? This era maps, you see a lot of transition. Again, you're transitioning away from the movie or the movie backbone of it into something a little bit more, I wouldn't say inventive, because at the time, this was the only show that was doing this type of really commentary, obviously, on the Vietnam War, using the Korean as its stand-up for it. But really, you start seeing them going away from more of the goofball-ish type you know, hijinks of a mass unit into something a little bit more, you know, serious of the effects of war. And you're starting to see some of the characters actually take that on. And, you know, with, with Henry going and then eventually, you know, Frank going, you're starting to take that away and start putting more people to have more color, more different uh, outlooks, obviously try to keep it a little fresher. So I think this transition from, you know, four and five into the later seasons, it's really necessary to have those people in place. And I actually find them going back and forth between the, not the heavy handedness, but a lot of the drama as well as some comedy. And it's, it's, I think it's really, it's necessary, obviously, to go. You couldn't do this going from one season where it was just straight up laugh track all over the place to and now just a really hardcore co- uh, drama. So I, I, it's really necessary. And I really enjoy a lot of actually rewatching them because as a kid, when I saw them, when they were in repeats, you don't get a whole lot of it. But now rewatching it through a different eye, you start noticing, oh, okay, I see how they're building the blocks to go forward in the future with the show. Absolutely. Uh, I've been saying, uh, you know, throughout the season that uh, the, the reason, one of the reasons I love season four so well is that they did the big swings really well and they did the small swings uh, really well, you know, and uh, not everybody in baseball can hit a home run, but you need guys to hit uh, singles and, and uh, doubles, you know, and these, to me, this is, uh, and, and to me, this kind of episode, this is a lighter episode, the gun, but it works just as well in its own terms because it's very, very funny and well, very well done. So let's get right to it. As I mentioned, uh, this episode aired on December 2nd, 1975, written by Larry Gilbert and Gene Reynolds. That's a dynamite team and directed by Burt Metcalf. Wounded arrive at the 477th, including a Colonel Chafee, played by Warren Stevens, who is carrying a rare antique pistol as a sidearm. Raider takes in and locks up in the gun bin, standard operating procedure, but not before Frank takes a few moments to drool all over it in a display of machismo. Later, when Raider returns to the gun bin, he sees that the Colonel's gun is missing. He tells Colonel Potter, who starts an investigation to find it. Otherwise, Raider could go to jail for many years. Radar is paralyzed with fear. I won't get out until in 30. That's almost dead. Colonel Potter fails to find the gun and has to break the news to Colonel Chafee, who is enraged and wants to speak to the non-comp poop who lost his precious gun. Meanwhile, Frank shows Margaret an antique gun that he got from home. He has it to be sent because he missed his old pal. 
Hawkeye and BJ confront Frank, insinuating that he took the gun, and now that it's gotten Radar in trouble, he should give it back. Frank, not giving an inch, notices how everyone is entitled to be innocent until proven guilty, except for him. Hawkeye and BJ, annoyed that Frank is actually right for once, back off. Radar gets drunk, sure is that he is going to the stockade. In the middle of the night, he staggers over to visit Colonel Chafee and post-op to protest his innocence. While there, they both hear a gun go off, causing everyone to run outside. In the confusion, Frank makes his way to Margaret's tent with a gunshot wound to the foot. He at first tells a tall tale about getting into a fight with someone he saw lurking in a supply shed, but Margaret forces him to tell the truth. That gun isn't his. It never was. While he was trying to return it, it accidentally went off. Margaret is mad at Frank for stealing and lying, but Frank has learned his lesson. Yep, when he steals something, don't ever try and return it. The gun now back. All the charges against Radar are dropped. Colonel Chafee apologizes to Radar, and Colonel Potter suggests the gun is more trouble than it's worth. Maybe Colonel Chafee should think about donating it to a museum. Chafee will have none of that, insisting he'll keep it until the day he dies. He rides off. The next day, Hawkeye and BJ hint at the true source of Frank's wound. Just a guess, Hawkeye says, really. A shot in the dark. All right, Brits. So, The Gun. Uh, I love this episode. I love it. It's so fun to watch. Uh, I mean, we're going to go through the scenes individually, but what's your overall take on this episode? Well, as you said before, this is a relatively light episode in comparison to some of the other ones. Really has no real consequences outside of, you know, pushing along. And again, this is probably my dime store, the psychoanalysis, but seeing, you know, Frank slowly go through an identity crisis. (laughs) Uh, I mean, if you look at it throughout the entire season four and season five, you're starting to see Frank lose more and more of who he thought he was, which, you know, Potter now is a regular army guy where he wasn't when Blake wasn't, you know, BJ is not just a sidekick. He's also someone different, you know, you see Margaret's lack of support for him. So he's really seeing a lot of his stuff erode that he, I guess, initially thought who he was. So now he's trying to grab at straws to make sure he knows and tries to self validate who he is. And so I look at this as in that aspect that like, He's going after the gun show. Yeah, I'm a real, you know, machismo type guy. And even when he tries to show off his gun skills, he gets shown up by radar at the gun <laughs> bin. So he's like really struggling to, to find out who this, who he is. I mean, obviously we saw him give up on a patient earlier in the season. Uh, you know, he's, you know, he's, uh, he had some paranoia when they were in the bus. He's really struggling. And I think, you know, as the season continues, obviously, you know, how this ends for him, at least you really start seeing that ball rolling to where he's, uh, he's a lost soul. And, you know, I think Larry Linville really, after rewatching this series again, he really was not given the credit he was due for making that character, even though it was one dimensional showing just putting so much life into that one character. Oh, completely agree with that. It's interesting that you say that uh, I hadn't really thought of it until this point. They're slowly splitting Frank and Margaret apart. You know, Ma- Ma- Frank is getting kind of worse and worse with his behavior, and Margaret is getting kind of more and more willing to to split herself off from Frank. And we know what's coming, obviously, in the beginning of season five. And you can you can when you look back on it, you can watch uh, that develop, and you see you know retroactively, you're like, oh, I see what they're they're layering it in here. But you said something about Frank being a regular army man, and I hadn't really thought of it to this point, which is you know, a little shameful. <laughs> I've only had 30 years to really contemplate all these episodes. But with Colonel Potter in, in the, at the 477th, Burns has a – before Colonel Potter, 
he was able to sell himself as a real army man because there was nobody to contradict him. Really. Margaret was never going to contradict him and no one else in the unit was a real army person. Henry certainly wasn't. So, so Frank could convince himself that he was a real army guy. Well, now that's all faded away because there is a genuine real army man there. And obviously he is falling far short of that example. And I don't know if that's on purpose or just an accidental thing, but that's a really interesting shading to Frank's character that he, what he thinks of himself as I'm a, I'm a major, I'm a big deal in the army. He's nothing compared to the, 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 the stoic heroicism that is Colonel Potter. That's a really interesting observation. I've never thought of it that way before. Yeah. And if, even after we go through the season, even further down the road, you'll find out, you know, I don't want to spoil too much for people, but you know, <laughs> obviously his wife finds out about what's going on with him and Margaret, which of course freaks him out as well. And then he's going into a wild frenzy, you know, at some point when Margaret leaves to go uh, to Tokyo, he starts r- looking at nurse Kelly to, <laughs> to hook up with. You're a real hotsy totsy. Hotsy Exactly. So, I mean, he's really making these big grand gestures and almost like a sinking man trying to grab the, the life rest life raft or something like that to where he's really trying to find his himself. And I think that's, and then of course you go into season five when Margaret gets engaged and stuff like, a, Oh my gosh. I mean, again, he even tries to get buddy with uh, Hawkeye and BJ. So, I mean, he really <laughs> is struggling. And I think while this one may not be as grand as all the other ones, it still highlights the fact that he is still trying to find himself somewhere. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's re- I really, that's interesting. I really like that idea that, uh, yeah, Larry Linville. Yeah. Underrated, absolutely underrated. Yes. And, and unfortunately uh, we tend to view actors um, uh, in a, in a, in a well, I think everyone does this and it's hard not to in a slightly judgmental way. in that like, if they never accomplish anything great after, after like one project, they, you know, we kind of think, well, maybe they weren't that great, but that's not, they just might have not have been lucky. And yeah. Larry Linville, I mean, no offense to, to, to Mr. Linville and his family, but Larry Linville never really did much of anything post-MASH that anybody remembers. Uh, and that's really not his fault. That's the luck of the draw of being an actor. But man, when he clearly, when he was handed good material, he could crush it. Because he's great in this. He's great in the show. And he makes this character that is so unlikable, uh, funny. And you know, the fact that you don't want to kill him immediately is, is all testament to, to Larry Linville's uh, performance. Uh, again, he's just great in here. So the show opens uh, not with um, Frank, but it opens with uh, Margaret in Margaret's <laughs> tent. She's obviously fallen asleep. Radar comes in to get her. And again, one of those you know sort of classic Margaretisms where Raider comes in, wakes Margaret up, and of course she accuses him of pawing her, and she's screaming hysterical. And then, you know, she starts yelling at him, sort of accusing him of leering at her, and he's like, "No, I never even looked at your leg." And then she's like, "Don't, don't you think it's pretty? You think it's a nice leg?" And he's like, "Wait a minute, hold on! They're like, you're mad at me because I'm pawing at you." And then I was like, "I wasn't pawing at you." And then she's almost like, "Why weren't you pawing at me?" Like, oh, you can't win with her. Uh, and it has a some great physical gag where she's like. I want you to leave exactly as you found it, which of course Raider means he does everything in reverse. He uh, rescues the lampshade, puts the record back on, slides out, and it's just you know, poor poor Raider. Just you can't win with her because no matter what you do, she's going to get mad at you. Right, and haven't they used this gag before? Where she comes in, he uh, Radar comes in and disturbs Margaret while she's resting. They I did. swore 
Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like that's another something that not a crutch, but something they like to do is again, show that Margaret gets insulted, but then also wants the confirmation that she's still attractive uh, <laughs> in that, in the same breath as yelling at him for pawing her, as you said. So. I love that that Ritter refers to compares her like to his ponies back home, pony. except that pony's <laughs> hair is brown. This is great. That's uh, that's fantastic. So, uh, so we've got wounded coming in and uh, we get a soldier. There's this interesting little uh, side bit with this soldier where he talks about that a, a fellow American tank, knocked them off the road and it was one of ours and we're going up north with colonel cheney and he says how can americans do that to one another and then there's the reaction well you ever heard of the civil war and um it's interesting first of all this actor that has this speech about how another bunch of americans knocked them off the road he's uncredited so i'm i was not able to find out who this is which is very strange usually i would think you have to get credited if you have even a single word in an episode of a TV show, but he is remains uncredited. So I don't know who this is, but I like that little detail that, um, you know, we like to American history tells us that, you know, Oh, wow. We were all pulling in the same direction. And those older wars, not so much, you know, the most recent wars or even Vietnam, but man, the Korean war, world war two, we were all on the same team. Well, not necessarily. And it's got a nice little dark cast to it that, yeah, you know, there were, there were some, not good behavior going on from these soldiers and that you have some Americans just completely disregarding the safety of other Americans when presumably we're all fighting on the same side here. Yeah. It's a uh, first time I could remember as a kid hearing about quote unquote friendly fire. And that's, uh, you know, an instance of where, you know, there are competing agendas, even in the, the battlefield on where things should go and communication sometimes isn't great. So uh, something like that probably wasn't even, you know, especially at that time of night, I'm not sure what they could see, what they couldn't see. Maybe it was just something they, you know, they just rolled past them thinking it was a, a, a hostile and they weren't. So. Maybe. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of a grim thing. And I remember being young and hearing about that and kind of like, wow, really that, that kind of thing go on. Uh, so then uh, there's a moment where radar, uh, accidentally uh, <laughs> talks about that the gun's going to go in the gun bin, and he says standard operating procedure. And he says, "Oh, wait, folks, let's move them out." And he's talking to to BJ and Hawkeye, and Hawkeye has that whatever you say, Commodore. And of course, you know, <laughs> radar, radar catches himself realizing that he's just given orders to Hawkeye and BJ. <laughs> it's a nice little moment. It's cute. Uh, and then we're in the operating room, and as you uh, as you talk about that, the, they're going to be. Um, they're, they're doing kinds of old sort of different surgery here. They're doing actual surgery and then they're setting a broken leg with plaster and stuff. It's not something you think you would do that in the OR. You think you would do that in a separate room just to keep everything hygienic. Yeah. And it, what's funny, I think nowadays they don't even do plaster anymore. I think a lot of it is hair casts. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure someone who's under a certain age will look at it and go, what are they doing to their arm? They never. <laughs> had to worry about putting on you know now they do air casts and all these other splints and stuff but they don't have to put plaster on your arm and have it itch forever and never mm-hmm. be able to get that one itchy spot so mm-hmm. i just thought it was funny to see plaster and going oh yeah i remember having that back in the kid as a kid so yep 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 uh have you ever broken a a limb i've never broken a limb so i've never had oh. this happen to me I, I, I probably don't want to keep the podcast going with how many limbs I've broken as, oh. a, as a child. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can at least give you my arm twice, my leg once, my collarbone once. Oh, my God. What are you? What were you, Evil Knievel? What was that about? Uh, what are you doing, ba- Back in the day, I did uh, – well, my collarbone is when I played football in Japan. 
uh, actually got tackled and broke my collarbone pretty bad. Uh, my arm falling out of trees, uh, obviously didn't have the internet back then. So anytime I crawled up a tree, I'd have a hard time getting down. And then one time I jumped off of a relatively sizable stump and broke my foot and then walked home to, to go back to the hospital to get it set. My parents were always worried that they were going to call CPS on them because, uh, all the my the size of my file, I guess. Right, right, yeah. Jeez, oh my, your poor parents. <laughs> oh oh yes. Oh wow. Well, you've 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 had your extra share of broken bones, which makes up for mine. I never had any, so it all balances out and across America. So, uh, in the uh, operating room, Colonel Potter tells a story about the time where he almost got crushed by a runaway portable latrine. Uh, yet another installment of the young Colonel Potter adventures show that never got made, sure. but still could be, still could be made nowadays. Um, I think it could it has legs for sure. I think so. There's a lot of uh, a lot of fun stuff going on. And he talks about the bullet flying around. There's a story about a uh, bullet flying around the room. He said he makes up all these stories. And then uh, Hawkeye and BJ tell some stories about how they were both kind of really pacifist children. Uh, where he says uh, you know, he BJ makes a joke about playing with dolls. And then Hawkeye talks about shooting a bear in a carnival game. And he says, uh, you know, I, after he shot the bear, he wanted to dress its wound. So I love the contrast of. Colonel Potter kind of had this rough, rough and ready kind of Brit Shram esque existence from what we're hearing, <laughs> and then Hawkeye and BJ were much more sensitive children. <laughs> I, I relate to that a lot more. I think it's a, it's really cute that and Colonel Potter kind of gives them their lead. Like he he laughs at their jokes and he doesn't. Of course, he doesn't mock them because he's Colonel Potter and he's awesome. But it's just a nice contrast that you've got these two sensitive souls versus Colonel Potter, who is <laughs> it's all sorts of crazy adventures. And he and Potter does kind of say, "Well, you're." bigger joker or bigger liar than bigger I. liar than so, i am yeah. so they know that there's some gray in whatever they're telling <laughs> uh, maybe a little little bit of uh overblownness is what the uh, of their stories so and i know uh as i was watching they said something about uh potter had a was it an uncle who shot his foot or toe yep. off yep. and killed the cat as well so yep. i mean yep. definitely <laughs> some some funny side stories about that for sure yeah, there's a there's 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 a rich show in there if they ever wanted to make it. If uh, you know who I guess it's Disney owns Mash now, so if Disney Plus needs some new content oh. and they get tired of doing Marvel, uh, endless Marvel shows, uh, they could always and Star do Wars and Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah, they yeah. could always do some some Mash content if if they wanted to. So uh, so uh, then uh, Frank follows uh, Radar back to the gun bin. We get with this whole this whole detail where we see that you know Radar is in charge of a lot of stuff. And he has this keychain, this absurdly huge keychain. He talks about this, this is oats for the colonel's horse and yada, yada, all this, all this other kind of stuff. And then that's when Frank sees the gun, Colonel Chippy's gun, and he gets all excited. And he talks about perfectly balanced. And he's all happy with himself. And he's twirling it around. And look, I don't like guns. I never have. I never will. I will say it's a handsome-looking weapon. I mean, it is a big, bold gun. Uh, I don't know what kind of um, guns soldiers were issued. I'm guessing they were relatively inexpensive pistols. But man, the thing that Colonel Chafee's got looks like—I uh, mean, it looks like something Dirty Harry would have carried. It's a big, big weapon. Well, it's a—I I actually did some research. I'm not a gun uh, person either, but I do remember it's—it's it's a Colt 45. I'm sure it's nickel plated, which is why it makes it so shiny. It has bone handles. Uh, it was. Uh, actually, you know, I think Margaret, uh, we can get to a little later, but she knows a description on it. And that kind of is a anachronism because it really wasn't made during the time that she sees the inscription. But the oh, okay. auction, th- that type of gun was so popular in the 
late fifties. Cause I think it was used in Westerns and stuff like that, that Mattel actually made a similar one for kids. Uh, and right. <laughs> yeah, I know. And right now it actually could go for, if it has the box with holster mitten box with holster, it's about over two hundred dollars. Mm, okay, so, mm. but yeah, so it's it's a it's it's a very well known gun. I'm assuming uh, it was used a lot in the in the West. Obviously, the closest to a toy gun I had as a kid was uh, Han Solo's blaster that I had. Uh, uh, I, I'd never had any sort of cap guns or anything. I was never into that stuff. So uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the closest I had was was that was that sort of thing, or maybe uh, something that shot web shooters or something, you know, like a web shooter type <laughs> thing, right? everything like that. So uh, back in uh, post-op, we have Hawkeye and BJ talking to Colonel Chafee and telling him that uh, – uh, and Colonel Chafee's not a bad guy. Uh, he can joke around, and yeah, they talk about the, the, where the gun – he says, where's his gun? He says, oh, it's in the gun bin. And he says, you're, you know, you're in our lucky-to-be-alive department. And then there's a little gag where he says, I'd like to thank you guys in some way. And BJ says, you know, you could end the war a couple of days early. We're not allowed to take cash. And Colonel Chafee kind of chuckles and says – I'll do my best. So it's nice, you know. I mean, could, we're going to find later that Chafee is is a little more, a little less humorless, a little more humorless, excuse me, uh, than he seems here. But right now, everything's kind of good. He's happy. He's got his gun, and he's happy with the care he's getting. Uh, and now, then we have this scene in Margaret's tent where she's practicing yoga, and she talks about it's changing my whole life, which feels like a sort of non sequitur. I'm like, where? Mm-hmm. Where did this come? It sounds like Margaret's been doing yoga for a while. What? When did it? We've never seen this before. So I wonder if this was something they planned to like layer in later episode. I think there's one other episode, a, um, a season six episode with with Charles, where she mentions mentions yoga. But that's pretty much it. So I don't know. They dropped this in, and then it just it pretty much never uh, affects the character of her again. Well, I wonder if it's two things. One, to kind of show Margaret's growth and how she's becoming more worldly. Or as before, I'm sure she used to do calisthenics as part of any type of regular uh, army person would. But I think it's also, you know, showing her worldliness, trying to look at the world in other perspectives. And it's possible that Loretta Swift maybe was doing that on the side. I mean, again, at the time this was going, that type of exercise was becoming more and more, uh, I guess, popular. So maybe that was kind of her kind of way to get that into the characters to allow her to bring that to light. Maybe so. It's quite, quite possible. Um, and then and it does lead, of course, that, that you know, she's, she's looking all kind of uh, lithe and sexual. And that's a Frank's <laughs> to hug her, which, of course, makes her feel the gun. And then they have the whole conversation about uh, and then and then he makes up that story about, oh, I just sent it. I sent for it. I just missed my old pal, which is like. Uh, and then there's this curious line where Margaret wants him to wear it as a sidearm. And he's like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And he says, everyone's already jealous enough as is, which is a, a great insight into Frank's personality, that uh, he thinks that somehow everyone else in the camp is jealous of who Frank is, which, of course, we all know is completely untrue. And Margaret just blows by it and she doesn't acknowledge it. But it's like I, every time I hear that line, I'm like, Frank, what in the holy hell are you talking about? Well, and again, I was wondering, how do you get a gun shipped to you from stateside to Korea? I, mm-hmm. I, the, the logistics are baffling to me, so I, I, I was surprised. Plus, I thought because it was such a small you know, camp, she would have heard the gun was missing before right. Frank came by and got and, yep. and showed it to her. Yep. So, 
Yeah, she buys Frank's lie a, a little too readily, but that's again yeah. part of their relationship. Right after that, we see um, uh, Radar brings a soldier in to get his gun. It's another actor who has a line where he says, "Thank you, thanks, Corporal." He does not. He's not credited. Uh, so we get two actors here that have lines but don't actually get any credit in this episode. Very strange. And then Radar sees that the gun is missing, and uh, like, oh boy, that's going to be trouble. And that's our act break. And then we rejoin the show in the uh, in the, in the mess tent, and uh, Colonel Potter is reading um, Stars and Stripes. We see Hawkeye sniffing his food as something that he will do throughout the series. Um, there's a moment here, and I will say it is it is a rare moment for me, very rare where there is a joke uh, that I don't like. <laughs> it's a joke I don't like. And the joke is when uh, Margaret and Frank come walking by with their food. BJ stands up and Margaret says, oh, at least one of you remembers your manners. And BJ says, not at all. My shorts are just riding up on me. And I don't like that joke. I First of all, it seems very un-BJ. For him to make that kind of joke. It's also just kind of like a lowbrow joke. And it does seem kind of like picking on Margaret out of nowhere. I mean, I don't know. Am I, am I crazy? Brit? What do you, what did you think of that? I think of that gag. That, I, I did see that gag. I think, I, I don't know how they framed it, but obviously I think BJ still has those type of manners, but he's also, I, I wouldn't say wanting to conform to, uh, Hawkeye or go on, you know, be under his same type of, you know, humor. But I think he really initially stood up because he saw her coming. And then he realized his gaffe as far as the, the norms in uh, 4077. So he realized, oh, I can't really show that. So I'm going to oh. have to undercut it by making a joke at her expense. You're right. It's not great. It comes off as petty and, uh, and again, it, I think it's half of the writers maybe saying, okay, we still have to keep this type of vibe going where it's them against uh, us against them or, you know, Margaret and Frank being one camp and everyone else being another. It's, it, it doesn't come off as well as it probably could have. Uh, there's another joke in here where, where I also don't think it went well either, but that's uh, near the end of the scene. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. It just seems so un BJ like, but I, that's, uh, you're no prizing. It makes a lot of sense that BJ kind of did it out of, uh, habit, habit because he's, he's a, he's polite. He's a, he's, you know, and he's still relatively new to the camp and then, yeah, he's covering himself. So yeah. All right. I buy that. Uh, I buy that, uh, explanation. That makes a lot of sense. So then radar comes in, explains that the gun has been missing and Colonel Potter, and he has that great, you know, uh, this is something I don't want to tell you, but I guess I got no choice. And it goes on and on and on. And then, Colonel Potter talks about that you could get almost 15 years in Leavenworth, which seems a little, a little strict for just losing something out of the gun bin. But maybe they took that kind of stuff very seriously, or maybe because it was a colonel's gun. And it leads to a great gag where Radar talks about that he could be in jail for 15 years. I'll be in my 30s. That's almost dead. And I love, uh, I love BJ's reaction. He just looks so demoralized that someone thinks of themselves as being in their 30s as almost dead as, as someone who is, uh, just a few months away from 50. Yeah, 30. <laughs> I used to think 30 sounded kind of old, and now not so much. Yes, I fought the same way. Now, before we got to that, I did want to go back to, obviously, we know that the continuity with Nash was never good. No. Uh, but they have, Potter mentions the cheating scandal right. at, the, at the Academy. Of course, that cheating scandal happened in uh, 1951. Okay. Uh, which again predates 
Potter reporting to a 4077, he reports as the end of season, uh, season three, episode one, September 19th, 1952. Right. So he's already re- reading a year-old paper of Stars and Stripes, talking about the uh, Academy having 90 West Point ca- cad- uh, cadets getting bounced for cheating. So I just thought it was kind of funny that he... Uh, I read Stars and Stripes. It's not that far behind. Definitely not here. <laughs> I always took that date, the reporting for duty 1952 date, as just completely invalid. Because I think when they <laughs> when they put it in, I think they figured MASH probably has what? We probably have what? Three, four more seasons left? Most TV shows run seven, eight years. They yeah. had no idea that they were going to go till 11. And so they were like, oh, 52. Well, the war ended in 53. So that's about right. They, they just, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the same idea of how Bart Simpson is still a child and, and after 33 seasons of The Simpsons. It just makes no sense. Uh, so yeah, that date is just completely, completely invalid. But yeah, I like that the paper is so old. Obviously, it's a really old issue of Star Trek, right? So then, yeah, um, yeah. Colonel Potter. Oh, goes, and, oh, go and actually, right at the end of that scene, Father Mulcahy comes to sit at the table. Yep. And Potter asks him, Father, can you pray for a gun? And then, of course, McKay's response was, is it an American gun? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I have a problem with that. But that's it's just my sensitivity to A, praying for a gun, and B, making sure which one it was, whereas one was better than the other. Again, that was... Yeah, I, 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 yes, that it, line, it, yeah. I think it, the, I, the reason I almost didn't even mention, I'm glad you, you did, I didn't have it in my notes, is because... The way William Christopher delivers the line, he's, you could tell that Father Mulcahy is sort of like mocking it a little. Like, is it at least an American? Like, like oh, come on, I'm not going to pray for a gun. Is it at least an American gun? Like that, he's not that that makes it okay because praying for a gun, ugh. But uh, there's some, it's, it's like Mulcahy is kind of chiding Potter a little bit as much as he's comfortable doing, uh, yeah. in that line. But yeah, it is a, it is a, a little bit of a, a head scratcher of a line. Yeah. So, uh, so then uh, back in post-op, uh, Colonel Potter's talking to Colonel Chafee. He talks about uh, all the headaches, and he says, we, we've discovered lots of things in our search of your gun. A cockfight training camp, which is horrible. I don't get another mm-hmm. joke I'm not a big fan of just because the idea of cockfighting is so terrible. I don't even find jokes about it to be funny. But I like the uh, the three-day pass printing press. I thought that's a good <laughs> – <laughs> that, that's a well, great I – I wonder who's doing that. Is that, Zale? that seems like a Zale thing maybe. Well, they had to do that because Henry Blank would sign blank passes. We've mm-hmm. seen that in the past. Now that Potter's there, they're not that that gate is closed, so they yeah. have to find another way to get those free passes. That's great. I love all the chicanery that's going on. <laughs> um, so then we have Hawkeye and BJ looking for Frank, and there is a, a voiceover gag, and it talks about the they're showing the movie Kansas City Confidential. Uh, in the in the mess tent, and they said uh, you can watch it tonight for all those of you who have not seen it every night this uh, this month, which is again a gag of like that poor four seven seven doesn't get a lot of movies. I will say, um, it, unlike other uh, movies mentioned on this show, Kansas City Confidential is a real movie, uh, and it's a pretty good movie. I've seen it; yeah. it's actually a pretty good film noir. Uh, maybe seeing it, you know, every night for a month, it would get a little old, but at least it's not. Uh, you know, the uh, Mon Paquette will have a baby or whatever. The fake movies <laughs> got stuck Again, with. It, so. it, and it's funny because it ties directly to this plot. You know, the the you know, the the uh, plot of Kansas City Confidential is someone gets framed. And then That's he has to go right. back and, and has to go down to Mexico 
to to get you know make sure his he's cleared. So it really ties into the and it also was cited by Tarantino as one of his inspirations for Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a really it's a terrific yeah. movie. Yeah. It's on Amazon Prime if you want to watch it. Yep, it's a, yeah, it's a great little movie. I never even made the connection though, the plot wise. That's great. Yeah. That's great, Fred. I never thought about that. So of course, Hawkeye and BJ confront Frank, which uh, in a rare moment where we see Frank turns the tables. Where I love, first of all, I love the thing where he says, uh, uh, "Radar's a, a fibber. He's a congenital liar." And I love that Hawkeye and BJ are like radar, and even like even Frank has to come to admit that's obviously total nonsense. <laughs> if there's one person in the camp you would not call a congenital liar, it's Radar Orion. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, as I like that a lot. And uh, then Frank again, he turns the tables where he says, you know, hey, everyone else is uh, is entitled to being innocent before proven guilty, uh, but only Radar is, uh, is subject to that consideration. And I love that moment where they're both just. And then they realize, you know, they pause, and Frank goes, the ha, which is wonderful. <laughs> and then I love the, the, the button on the scene of Hawkeye turning to BJ and go, don't you hate it when he's right? And the look on Mike Farrell's face where he just goes, oh, he's so disgusted at the, that it's had to turn out that way. It's great. He rolls his eyes. It's such a great reaction. I'm just like, oh, this is, I can't, I can't believe we've been outsmarted even briefly by Frank Burns. Yeah, and there's something at the, before when they chase him into the OR. There's that one uh, discussion about the last time they, I guess they got a hold of him, they whitewashed him. Yeah, one of the, another scene where we wish we could have seen that. Oh yeah, one of those, the the lost history of Mash and just All to the- see the situation they got into. To actually whitewash Frank. Yeah, the MASH Lost Adventures episode. Yes. Uh, it's great. Yeah, I love like, hearing about all that stuff. So uh, then we uh, join Radar and Klinger drinking. Radar drinking himself drunk uh, after one whole beer in the, <laughs> in, the, in the Oak Club. There's a nice little detail here where in the background, sitting at one of the tables talking to a nurse, is clearly a chopper pilot because it's a guy with a leather jacket and he's got a yellow cap on. And we would later see that same exact outfit uh, on Smiling Jack. Uh, which is an episode coming up later on in the season. Now we don't see the face of this person because clearly it's not the same actor, but I like that attention to detail that it's a, be- it's a nice piece-, piece of continuity that that's probably the same chopper pilot that we're going to see in the smile and Jack episode. I think that's, we see him a couple different times uh, yeah. in this episode. And I just like that little detail. Now I don't know whether it was, you know, they, whether they just had that cap laying around, they were like, okay, Anytime we want to show a chopper pilot, give him the yellow cap so we have some continuity. But I like that they thought to give that carrot smile and jack the cap in the later episode. You're like, okay, this is this is not just a one-off chopper pilot. This is somebody that Mash knows. He's somebody who constantly is dropping patients off. It's a nice little detail. Yeah, it's a good nod. And uh it's a, to a wonderful episode. That's also one of the ones that uh, <laughs> I don't we don't need to talk about that episode, but I love that episode as well. But it I always thought it was funny. They call it the O Club and let I don't think there, other than Smiling Jack, I don't think anyone else in there is an officer. So I always think it's funny <laughs> that they still call it an O Club. <laughs> well, luckily, you know, said every well, Father Mulcahy, he's an officer. He's playing. Well, piano. that's true. He was, he's a he lieutenant. Was yeah, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, they don't. They obviously don't uh, don't uh, enforce that at all. Now this scene, um, and I'm not, I mention it. I tend to mention it all the time. I'm, I, specifically, I'm going to get into it here because it plays uh, into something later on. This scene uh, with Radar's uh, speech about all the different things that he had to do for uh, while he's under observation for maybe stealing the gun. And then he talks about that, uh, how proud he was that he made corporal and he kind of, uh, 
showed every, you know, talked to, to everybody back at the back at a Tumwa and how proud they are of him. This scene is mostly cut the ribbons in syndication. Uh, I only saw the scene when I finally got the DVDs. They basically, in, when, in the local syndicator in the Philadelphia market, they basically cut all of this out. They go from him talking about uh, initially being drunk, and then they cut right to Klinger saying, you know, you're overwearing. Things don't happen until they do. And Raider goes, 15 years. Everything in between, cut. All that's missing. All the stuff about Atumwa, all the stuff about that he got uh, himself photographed for 16 hours. So he gets in a picture to everybody in his high school class. All, all that's 400. gone. Yeah, all 400. All that's gone. In the they had to find a way to, to cut the episode down for syndication. So that's where they decided to cut it. But it will reflect something in a later scene, which I will mention. So that's, uh, again, this is something where I'm kind of seeing new things a little bit, uh, thanks to the DVDs. Yeah, and uh, it also speaks, and again, it goes back to what you said about getting drunk after one beer. This is the continual <laughs> retconning of Radar. And, yep. you know, obviously in season one, he was much more of a player. He was much more of a an operator under the scenes. But now we're seeing as, you know, season two forward, he's kind of more of the teetotaler that only will, you know, go to great knee high for his go-to <laughs> drink. And it was actually, I, I did a little research to figure out why they actually did this. And this was at the insistence of Berghoff. He wanted to make uh, Radar innocent to contrast the sophisticated doctors, which uh, would be like a, a sounding board for the insanity and horror of war. And so, and that was from the Hollywood Report of Oral History, what they did 35, 35th anniversary of the 83rd, uh, 1983 finale. So, um, yeah, it was really, they kind of, again, another way of transitioning away from the movie and making Bert, Gary not so much, or, you know, Radar not so much a, a operator that could get things done, more of just the, the, uh, innocent of, uh, people coming over to the war and, the atrocities to it and they're they're having having it scar them in one way or the other smart move on Berghoff's part it's always better yeah. to have greater contrast on the shows uh and then we were in the scene in radar's office where colonel potter makes a public address asking people if you have the gun you can return it no questions asked and then he puts drunk radar to sleep even so far as to getting out his teddy bear and wrapping it in uh in in radar's arms again colonel potter like the best possible uh commanding officer anybody could want you know, oh, yeah. I mean, it just, he's everything you want. He, he's on the case. He's trying to get radar exonerated. And yet he's also, uh, he's not mad at his corporal for being drunk and he even takes the time to, to put the teddy bear on him. It's just, uh, you, you can't beat this guy. <laughs> it's just yeah. the best. Uh, and then we see that radar, excuse me, that, that Frank is skulking off in the scrub room and he's waiting till everybody's leaving. He, he lifts radar's keys and he tries to put the gun. Uh, back and then um, and then uh, then we have radar apparently of course has gotten up uh, he's still drunk he goes to visit Colonel Chafee and here is this line that I was uh, referring to earlier he says on account of you I was photographed for 16 hours now if you had seen the previous scene where he talked about that he sat for 16 hours to get photographed to get a picture of himself for all 400 members of the Atumwa high school class he's because he's drunk He's blending those two things together, but I had not seen that scene. So, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of just fill in the gaps for things because that's how your kid brain works. When I heard that line where he said it was on account of you, I had to be photographed for 16 hours. I always took it as 
radar is under heavy investigation for the missing gun. And he's been kind of like by somebody that we haven't seen was sort of like put under a hot light for 16 yeah. hours. Now he's exaggerating because clearly 16 hours he's drunk, but I always took it as he's been questioned for hours and hours and hours about where the gun is. And he doesn't know. And he's frustrated. And it's like an old timey uh, police procedural. That's how I took it. It's not that it's a, re- cause I never knew that it was a reference to a previous scene. Yeah, I mean, and that's something I think he may have seen uh, Flag do at one point. Sure, would be surprised. Sure. Something like that where he's either pulling it from a movie or something like that. And that's, like you said, if you didn't know the previous uh, scene, at least how it was chopped a bit, that's a logical leaping uh, conclusion. Yep. Uh, we get Radar getting to do his second John Wayne impression. Uh, of the episode, uh, you better believe it, Mister, or I'll be dead where you stand. And he <laughs> features some uh, great comedy timing. I'll talk about that uh, shortly. And we hear the gun go off, and we see obviously there's this commotion. Uh, Margaret tries to flag down Father Mulcahy, and he is uh, lost in his inability to spread rumor. You know where he's like, I don't want to. I want to start of censoring rumors, but. But maybe uh, that's the scuttlebutt, which is absolutely no help to Margaret whatsoever. And even we get a great reaction by Loretta Swit. She's just like, thank you, Father. We're sort of like, why did I bother to ask you? You didn't tell me anything. <laughs> this is great. Uh, then Frank shows up and we see that he's been wounded. And this is one of those things where, you know, in, in TV relationships, things obviously people have to put up with a lot more than you would put up with in, in real life. More, Frank tells this story about how he went into the gun bin and he saw two people and he got into a fight. This whole thing is a massive lie. It is a conscious, slow burn lie to Margaret. It's not a fib. It's not, you know, you fib your partner where your partner says, oh, did you like the, the you know, what did, did you like dinner? Yeah, it was good. You know, I mean, it's, not, it's not that kind of lie. This is a, he made it up from beginning to end. And Margaret just kind of lets it go. She calls him on it. But she still, she basically forgives him. And it's like, I don't know if, I think if somebody lied to me to that extent, I'd be like, I'm never trusting this person again because they just make them, they just make stuff up. Well, I mean, to Frank, I think he said, what, lying is worse than stealing and he should know because he's done both. <laughs> I've done both. I mean, yeah. I've done both, yes. So, I mean, it's, it, I think, uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's a little bit of self-delusion in Margaret because I'm sure as she's uh, been with you know, with him in this arena for so long that she realizes that most of the stuff that he says is not always a hundred percent accurate. Um, and so he, he still is still very on brand for to Frank to find a way to, to weasel out of something that he did uh, terribly. And, you know, obviously he's, he's trying to still look good in her graces. And I, I go back to the fact that if you look at it through the fact that he is really all just struggling He's trying to find any way to look good to her, to try to be more of someone who he thinks he is. And it's just, it's really, uh, again, another uh, symptom of someone who doesn't, who, who's lost. Yeah, I really, yeah. It's, it's it, 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 I, he sat there and he concocted this whole story to tell Margaret from the beginning. And then again, it all, it all falls apart so quickly. And then he, I love his whimpering. Larry Linville is great. The, the careful. <laughs> <He's> just, absolutely. <laughs> and she's, and she's like, it just nicked the side. You know, she's like, Oh my God. You know, he's, he's just so not the guy uh, that, uh, that she wants him to be. And again, within relatively short time, uh, that'll be the end of it. So yeah, we see the the fracturing of this, this relationship. And then, you know, and he learned a very important lesson. You steal something, 
Don't ever try and return it. So there you go. Good, good job, Frank. Missing everything. Um, and then the next morning, they good bug, bid goodbye to Colonel Chafee. And there's a great little moment here where Potter tries to give Chafee the advice about that guns, a lot of trouble, drop it in the sea, give it to a museum, uh, you know, basically just get rid of it. And Chafee says, I'll keep it to the day I die. And I love that Potter has this little aside where he says, and it won't surprise me a bit. And it's like he's kind of giving a little dig on Colonel Chafee. And Colonel's kind of – he can't really do that. Colonel's really supposed to do it. But he gets away with it. He kind of just shrugs it, and they give each other a salute, and Chafee drives off. And I just love that Colonel Potter is sort of willing to comment like that, like, eh, all right, you know, I'm trying to give you some advice, but you're going to be a knucklehead about it, so fine. Again, another reason why I love Colonel Potter so much. Well, I mean, again, from Potter's perspective, perspective, he's going to look – You've already seen what happened here. Yep. You know it's going to follow you. Anytime someone sees something that shiny and bright, it's going to be an object of desire. And, it, you know, to some people, they like having that object of desire and want to have it and won't care the ramifications of them having it. So it's you, know, you try to t- you're talking to a, a wall at that point because they're going to continue to go doing what they're going to do, yep. no matter what you try to help help them through. And it ends with a gag where uh, Colonel Potter talks about that everything is jumpy and blurry. Uh, and Raider says the same thing. And Raider's like, and Potter's like, well, I didn't, I didn't drink a drop. So why? And then they realize they each have each other's glasses on. And I don't think I'd ever noticed at that point that they have virtually the same kinds of glasses, those grimless circular things. And they realize they're wearing each other's glasses and they, they switch. And then they both are like, ah, yes. And it's a nice moment where they walk off together. Potter pats Raider on the back and, you know, all's well that ends well. Uh, it's a it's a nice little wrap up for the episode, uh, and then we of course we have our button scene where uh, Hawkeye and BJ are once again playing a game. Where we see them a lot of these episodes end with them playing games. Uh, this is multiple times we've seen them playing chess. Here they're playing chess in uh, the uh, Quovadas episode. They were doing that uh, state capitals game, but I like that it's when these two guys are just kind of goofing around and hanging out together. Uh, they're just having fun. And then Frank walks by and he's limping, of course, and he claims it's an old football injury. Again, yet another lie. Hawkeye. And then he says, of course, you know, leave a bandage off of it makes the power burns will uh, heal faster. And Burns gets caught saying, of course, I know that. And then he realizes what he just said. Powder burns. What are you implying? And again, it ends with the line I quoted where Hawkeye says, it's just a little shot in the dark. And uh, PJ appreciates that little gag. Frank walks off in anger. And that's a, uh, that's the end of our episode. So that's that's the gun. An overall great show. As you said, it's inconsequential, but it's very funny. And it gives everybody something to do. Uh, and it's just a, it's a really solid episode. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, and it further highlights, uh, strengthens the bond between Potter and Radar. Because, again, Potter stuck up for Radar as much as he could up to a certain point. Because, you know, he didn't lose the gun. He didn't take the gun. So it definitely shows that there's some, you know, whereas I think in a couple of uh, episodes earlier, you know, Radar was really wary about Potter and everything like that. Now, all of a sudden, you're starting to see them form a really familial bond between each other, father-son or grandfather-son type type role. So, yeah, really, really, really solid show. And again, a good performance by Warren Stevens as uh, Colonel Chafee. He's just kind of a blustery guy. And uh, it's uh, overall very, very solid. So, uh, Britt, do you have a particular favorite line or joke from this episode? I do. Uh, other than the one about the being 30 and practically dead, which still hurts <laughs> all these years later. That's uh, almost dead. 
Oh, gosh. Yes. But there's the one that may have gotten chopped out of the syndication one where, you know, Radar, obviously being drunk, said, I'll be going to jail my puberty and not coming out until my adultery. <laughs> when you, when, if you do the through line, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you don't know what the word adultery means, it makes sense. You see how oh, Radar yeah. put that together, you know? It's <laughs> puberty, and now I'm an adult, so that's my adultery. It makes total sense. Uh, yeah, that is a good line. My favorite line is another Radar line. It's when he's drunk, and he's confronting Colonel Chafee, and he does the John Wayne bit where he says, you better believe it, Mr. Are you dead where you stand? And he points his bear at Colonel Chafee. And right at that moment, you hear the gun go off, and there's this wonderful pause by Gary Berghoff as he's drunk and he has, has that shock. He looks at his bear and he, my bear went off. I laugh at that every time. It's a great physical gag. The timing of it is perfect. The, the ADR is great. They drop the gun, right? The, the gunshot sound as soon as it comes in. But I just love the, that he's so drunk that he just stares at his bear sort of quizzically. You know, my bear went off. I just, I, it's just a great, great gag. So that's my favorite line from this episode. It's just, and very, to very me, is, is he aping a little Jack Benny with his shock? And maybe I, the way he looked at it, it, to me, it always looks, I feel like I'm looking at Jack Benny. He does oh, that type totally. Of, yeah. yeah. Oh, Ber- Berghoff is doing Benny all over the place. He even talked yeah. about that in interviews. When he does the uh, the fingers on the face. Yes. Uh, yes. That's total Jack Benny. That whole, you know, because Jack Benny would do like the, well, you know, that thing. <laughs> so when he's doing when he's doing that, he is, yeah, he's, he's totally aping Jack Benny uh, multiple times. Uh, when he does that little physical gag. So, yeah, and I think I think Berghoff did. I think he even said that in a maybe Susan Walter's so book or somewhere. He talked about that. He was consciously doing that. So we have Hawkeye doing uh, Groucho Marx mm-hmm. and Radar doing Jack Benny. Perfect. You know, yeah, <laughs> all, all these all-timey radio stars. And stuff. So, so that is The Gun, an overall great episode, a solid season four episode. So, uh, Britt, thank you once again for, for coming by the show. It's always great to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me, sir. Oh, I very much enjoyed it, and we're looking forward to talking to you on further seasons of MASHGAS. So that's going to do it for this particular episode. We're always talking MASH over on Twitter at MASH477Cast. All the back episodes of this show are on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. And finally, if you want to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice so big salute to Nicholas Prom, Russell Burbage, Stan Peel, Dolph DeVries, Britt Schramm, hey, Mike hey. Thomas, <laughs> and Michael Porter for their slash your support of MASHGAST. I really do appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you later. But until then, that is all. Last time we were alone, you whitewashed my behind. We've given up still lights, Frank.